Hello and welcome to everyone to another episode. We have a very special guest today. He is a founder. He's worked in VC and he also has a creative side, but I won't tell you too much about that because he can do that later. But uh, with that being said, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, Mike. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. How are you? I ca could complain a little bit um, because I just had to move out of my apartment in New York because my roommate has COVID. So I'm in a hotel recording this, as you see from my setup. But other than that, I think I'm, I think I'm doing fine. Very happy that we finally made it because we had to reschedule this a couple of times because of conflicts on either side. So very happy that we finally get it done. But why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're currently doing, but specifically also how you got there? Cool. Perfect. Yeah. So happy to kind of run through 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 my background. Um, so my name's Sackett. I'm the co-founder CEO of it. Um, but before that, um, I wrote a novel. So it's kind of the creative thing that, that you mentioned, Mike. Um, so after university, I wrote a novel that didn't get published because um, there was one small bottleneck, which was that it was terrible. Um, and that that ends uh, that kind of uh, ended the dreams of being being published. Um, it's a very I, I got told it was terrible in like a very British way actually. So you'd like you talk to agents right, and they would just be like, "Hmm, interesting," which is very like British for this is this is terrible. Um, and so after that, I needed to figure out what else I was going to do in my life. And that kind of brought me out to Berlin, actually, um, where that's and that's I got into the world of world of startups, um, just a lot of kind of fortune, essentially, um, and good good timing and good luck. And so I ended up working for a rocket internet company called called Vanade, um, which was a SaaS enabled marketplace for for beauty services. Um, I don't I know there's no video on this, but um, if there was, I think the listeners would be able to tell I'm not the core demo. So definitely wasn't a mission driven uh, career choice. Um, uh, but I had the great fortune of having a phenomenal boss, a guy called Dan, um, who would end up to do, you know, be far more famous for founding a company called Choco. Um, but I directly reported to him and he connected me to a couple of our investors and just said, hey, you have a good mind for strategy. Have you ever considered venture? Um, and that kind of kicked off three years in, in VC. Initially had a fund called GFC and then later had a fund called La Familia, which is an early stage B2B fund based out in, in Berlin. Um, so I worked there for, for a couple of years um, and just kind of saw that the way fundraising works for most companies today is suboptimal, right? So it's like kind of two pieces. One, it's always dilutive, right? You know, taking a primary equity transaction, you know, you give up 20, 25% of your company. Um, and secondarily, it's it's really slow, which really blew my mind. Like I expected the DD to be slow. Like I remember seeing my first kind of end-to-end -end deal as, as an intern at the time at GFC and I expected kind of DD to be slow. What really surprised me is like, once you have a term sheet, there's still like another four or five weeks of legal work, you know, um, which, you know, given that, you know, most funds are doing a deal, you know, at least every few weeks um, um, and some funds maybe every day or every, every few days, right, depending on the size and, and scope. Um, that really blew my mind and just really thought there was a space to kind of compete on on fundraising on on these two dimensions right of of dilution and on speed and that kind of brings me to what I'm doing today a company called vit which offers fast non-dilutive founder friendly cash um, for growing b2b SaaS businesses both venture backed and bootstrapped um, we give founders instant access to cash up front rather than waiting for monthly quarterly or biannual billing um yeah so i've been working on that for for a couple of years i appreciate i've been monologuing so we'll pause there but yeah happy to answer any questions and, and dive in further yeah i i have lots of different questions let's start with a couple of things that you did before and then we can talk about your current company later and focus on that for uh, the remainder of the podcast but one thing or one question that i have is like my understanding let, let, let's start with the creative task right so you wrote a novel, which is not necessarily what most people who work in tech were doing before they found the company, right? And my understanding is that like getting a novel published is like at least somehow similar to getting a startup funded in the sense that you have to chop your novel around, you have to talk to all these people, and then one of them needs to say yes. Like, is my outside understanding uh, like correct? And like, what are the similarities of getting that done and what are the differences would you say cool um so i mean the big big difference right um is that you're alone i think that's like the big thing right um is that you know writing something is very much a solo endeavor 
and building a startup is for most people a team endeavor, right? Like, you know, there are like, you know, solo founders, but, but I've, I, I have a co-founder. So it was never like on, on my own. And so I think that's like the biggest emotional difference, I would say. Um, but to get to the kind of practical differences of what you, what you mentioned, right? I mean, definitely some of the dynamics are the same, right? So for example, with myself, I was able to chat to uh, a few a few agents, like fundamentally because I had a family friend who had written a screenplay before, and so he knew a few people and could introduce me, right? Which is very much you know kind of akin to to venture, right? Um, where you know if you want to speak to an investor, you know the old adage of like kind of getting an intro or, or going via someone um, is is always preferred. Um, you know, I mean, cold outbound can work, but it's harder. And that's like a big, big similarity. So actually, even in my own kind of attempt, I guess, to get it to get it published, like even even in that even in that endeavor, um, I, I, uh, I got in front of people by introductions, which is, uh, yeah, probably the most akin to at least the fundraising part of, of startups. And how objective is the evaluation process? Like, does it always or does it often happen that the first 30 people say no, and then the 31st one says yes, and the book gets published, and it's a wild success. Because it happens in venture quite a lot. And you get lots and lots of no's, like almost every startup gets. Even the most successful startups out there, most of them like have heard so many no's, especially in the early days. Is that similar in novel publishing as well? Or is it usually that most people agree, well, this is just a like a, a good novel? So in my case, the 31st was also a no. So that was an issue for me. Um, but um, no, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of very, very famous or excellent, you know, books, poems, etc. that really struggled to get to get published, right? Um, so I think it's almost like two things, right? It's one, do people think it's good or not? And even if someone thinks it's good, does it have a wide audience, right? So actually another kind of fun fact that you're, you're seeing, like there've been a lot of, Again, I'm not in the weeds, right? So some of what I'll say will be from ignorance or will be a mischaracterization. But, you know, there is this kind of trend towards, you know, getting people with Instagram followings or Twitter followings or whatever else and trying to turn them into writers, right? Or have, have something ghostwritten and they are the the, the face on, on on the packet, essentially. Um, and I, I mean, and you see that in, in startups a little too, right? Like celebrity co-founders were taking, you know, somewhere between one to five percent depending on the on their pull right and being listed as a co-founder of you know music startup a or fashion startup b um so i think that's like definitely a, a common a common a common parallel um i am of the opinion that i think the really good that there's it's honestly in this case it's kind of like um venture in that everyone likes to think that the big bets in venture are like contrarian and right. But actually there's a big bucket and I'm sure you like know founders who are founding businesses where it's also just like known and right and you just have to win the deal. Um, so there are novels like that for sure, right? And then there's the other bucket. I think like Harry Potter quite famously struggled to get published. Yeah, that, that came to mind as well. Yeah. So I think it's like you just, you know, like 50% are like, it's clear it's going to be a winner. Um, and then 50% it's like super rare and that's where, you know, a publishing house or someone else can have outsized returns. Got it. That makes sense. Maybe two more questions on that topic before we move on to the tech part. Like, first of all, what was your novel about? So there's a great novel, which I read like four years later, called um, Secret History by, by Donna Tart. And if you want to read a good version of what I wanted to do, it's that book. And I highly recommend it. She's a fantastic author. Um, but what essentially I was trying to write, it's like, a bunch of kind of precocious kind of teenagers and, and students essentially, and one of them dies, right? And you, you see how it kind of impacts everyone else because um, death is quite a, it's quite a formative experience, right? For, for anyone. Um, the problem is that as a precocious 21, 22 year old, um, all my thoughts were the, were the thoughts of precocious 21, 22 year old. Um, so they weren't really that interesting and they probably weren't as deep as I uh, perceived them to be at the time. Um, and so essentially it was, it was, it was like in terms of the writing, it was, it was terrible. It was like, really, I tried to read it actually once again, like three years ago. I mean, it's really tortured to be honest. It's really tortured. I just have to close the laptop. It's quite embarrassing. But to, but to answer your question kind of directly, at least on around the plot line, you know, a bunch of kind of university students, 
Um, one of them passes away, um, and then you know you see how it impacts everyone um, and how it affects their lives. Okay, interesting. And then as a last question, like why did you decide to go that route? Like, what was your intention behind publishing the novel? Was it something that you always wanted to do, or was it something that started in university? Like. How did you end up on that path? Cool. Well, it, it didn't get published. And thank God I didn't do like an online publication because uh, it's, it's embarrassingly poor. Um, but honestly, it's I was like a bit aimless at university. Right. Um, so I really thought I was going to be like a PhD. Like, to be honest, um, I loved having my head in, in Wittgenstein and Kant. And I was like, OK, I can do a PhD and like be a professor. And I wanted to do that and didn't really have that many commercial interests to be honest and you can even see it like if you look at my cv and like you know summers were not spent you know at goldman or at mckinsey or whatever else right summers were spent you know working on the play that i ended up producing in my second year they weren't you know um so it's quite a, quite a, i guess i wasn't an artsy person but i got to explore being artsy at university right if that if that makes sense and then kind of realized in my third year that i just did and i did a three-year degree for context um that I didn't want to be a PhD because fundamentally I would just start to hate whatever I was working on. Um, I was like, okay, what else can I do? And it just felt like the next evolution, right? It's like, okay, well, if I was gearing up to spend four years of my life writing something long, right? Essentially what a, what a, what a PhD dissertation is. And I like arts and, you know, I, I read very deeply and I'm a decent short story writer. Um, so I'm very comfortable sharing the short stories that I write. I actually think they're quite good. Um, I was like, oh, how, how hard can this be, right? Um, and so, I, yeah, I think it was that. I think it was, like, less directional and more what I thought I was going to do kind of dissipated away from me. It was clear what I didn't want to do, and I was just like a kid trying to fill the gap, essentially. And it, and to, to my eyes back then, it looked like it would fill the gap, and it just didn't. Okay. So one of the items in the show notes will definitely be a link to your short stories now. So we we got that covered. But okay, so you, you tried publishing your novel, you like dabbled a little bit in the arts, and then you ended up on the venture slash tech startup side. Uh, you mentioned that earlier. And let's maybe talk a little bit about your, your stint in VC, because there's, there's usually this adage that VC is something that you do when you retire as a founder, right? At least it's like one of the running jokes that founders tell each other. And there is like different schools of thought of whether doing VC before you found a startup is helpful or actually detrimental. I think it can actually go either way, at least it's my personal opinion. But what do you think about your time in venture? What have you learned? And then specifically, would you do it again in hindsight or would you like to found your company even earlier cool so in venture i think i mean there's a bunch of stuff that you can you can learn right i mean i think the big things for me is honestly being really inspired right um i know that sounds cliche you know every vc will say it and probably like like junior vcs which is what i was right at the time like kind of over index on it more more than others being like inspirational founders or whatever but it really kind of just dawned on me that the people that I was talking to were going to have the ability to change the world. Right. And I think a lot of life, this is like, this is like, yeah, um, wisdom from a 29 year old, right. Which is what we all need more of our, in our lives. Um, I mean, I'm here for it. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think a lot of um, life is a difference between like knowing analytical propositions and just internalizing them and then behaving as if you know it. Right. Because I think most people know most of the important things, they just haven't internalized them in, in an effective way or carry on as if they know them, right? And for me, that's the thing I internalized. That, I, you know, I, I knew the story that, you know, like like Larry or Sergey, whatever, were in this garage, right? Like, we won't, like most of us know the story, even if you weren't in tech. But I just kind of internalized that, you know, you can be that, that guy or that gal, and then you can actually, like, have an impact on the world. Um, and I think that was, like, the big, I mean, that's a very personal thing, right? Like, that's just a big thing that was, like, it suddenly became possible. Like the realm of like what I could do suddenly opened up a lot. Um, but that's a personal thing. And many people might have that, you know, without having to be in venture. To get to the more like practical things of like, okay, what skill set do you learn, et cetera? I think the big ones are around understanding the importance of essentially team, 
um, like how excellent the people you are, like really de defines how much you can deal with chaos and how you can cope with chaos, right? Like a lot of early stage businesses is, is chaos, things change, things evolve. And essentially if you're with excellent people, the probability that you'll survive those things just go up. Um, and they, they, it certainly goes up exponentially, not linearly. And then a lot of the other things are around, you know, markets, you know, what's interesting to attack, what's not interesting to attack. I think the problem though with venture, to be perfectly honest, is that sort of stuff is interesting, like 100%, but it doesn't really give you, like how you analyze a market is almost always, well, not, not yeah, almost always, I would say, taking almost like a, a static figure, the time for shipping or the time for consumer lending or business lending, or whatever else it may be, and breaking it down. And the reality is, is the truly great companies are taking times that don't exist and creating them or just like taking existing times and just breaking them open, right? And you get there with more of a product lens. And I don't think venture really helps with that. I don't think it's detrimental, but I don't think it really helps with that. I'm not sure what does, to be honest, right? Because I wouldn't say a product role does that either because a, a lot of companies are terrible at shipping product, right? Um, even if they ship fast, they might ship the wrong thing. Um, so yeah, but I think on terms of that kind of essentially commercial business savvy, it's super, super helpful. Um, and to answer your second question, would I do it again? If I knew I wanted to be a founder, no, honest is the honest answer. Uh, and I love my time in venture, I love my colleagues, uh, many of them are, are close friends, but it's more, I've seen founders, maybe I won't mention him by name, but he's an angel investor. I, I, and he is one of the best founders I've ever kind of come across, right? Um, and, I remember talking to him and just feeling this gap between where I am and where he was. And I was like, Christ, like he's not that much older than me. Right. Like, could he, is he, has he really been born to like so many gifts that I don't have? And then I looked at his LinkedIn and I was like, Oh, he founded his first company when he was 15. And it was a company that had PMF, which is, I mean, that's the rarity, right? Like anyone can found a company at 15, but he found a company at 15 that had PMF and then another company at, 2010, which maybe you'd argue if you had PNF or not, but it definitely got relatively large. And I was like, ah, the Delta isn't like, like fluid intelligence or genetic. The Delta is he's been doing this for 20 years. Okay, suddenly it all made sense. Um, and so I think that would be the, like if I knew when I was like 15 in my bones that this is what I was going to end up doing with the rest of my life, which is what I believe right now, then yeah, I would I would have just started founding companies or joining early teams from, from day dot, to be honest. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's also a little bit the philosophy that I have, like my co-founders and I, we want to build businesses for the next decades and like make sure to make them as big as possible. And I don't even know what the problems are we can solve in 15 years, but I want to learn the necessary skills on the way. And if I just think about, like I founded my first company a bit more than three years ago. I've dabbled with like other things in like startups and tech before, but like my first real like startup I founded years ago which is the company i'm currently working on and if i just compare my current state of knowledge skills network like all of that with three years ago it's not even it's not even like a 10 percent, probably not a 10x difference it's rather like a 100x difference in terms of what i can do now if i had to start over again or just within a week what i can accomplish because i just know where to look i know a couple of things like on the meta level and then also specifically, sometimes it's what you mentioned earlier. Sometimes it's just knowing the right people and then sending them a quick message. So, yeah, I think the earlier, at least for me personally, uh, I would have liked to start a bit earlier as well. But then there are also other formative experiences, right? For example, for you, like dabbling in arts, maybe like not directly relevant to what you're doing now, but maybe it contributed to like, how you think, your eloquence, and many other things that maybe differentiate you from others and give you a different perspective. So I think there's also value in that. At least that's that's my opinion. But yeah, that was that was very interesting. How maybe maybe lead us through like a, a day of you in the VC. How did you? What was your lens in looking at companies? Did you have a specific market or vertical that you were focusing on? Um, just tell us a bit more about the specifics. Um, so one thing I want to say before answering this question is kind of what you said earlier about getting into the arts. It definitely defined me as a person, right? And I'm, I'm very happy for that. Um, and I think it made me more interesting and rounded as a, as a person, as, as essentially all hobbies taken seriously tend to for, for anyone. 
Um, and I think one thing that definitely helped on, on that endeavor is that it was a colossal failure, right? Like it was a huge, huge failure, right? So like when I was 22 and all my, again, you know, it's, you know, it's not the end of the world to fail at 22, but it, it definitely feels like it at the time when all my friends were at like Goldman or McKinsey or Stripe or they were going to HBS and Stanford or whatever and early admit, uh, admittance schemes, whatever else, right? I was just sat there feeling like the world's biggest dummy, right? Um, and then as you get older, you just appreciate it. it's not really that bad. Like losing sucks, but like the worst case scenario isn't, you know, starvation. It's just your pride gets hurt. And if you just like stop caring about your pride, then you can really take high, high risk bets, right? Because the worst is, again, it's not starvation. It's just your pride gets shattered. And if you just stop caring about that, you can do it, do a lot. Um, but anyway, to answer to answer your actual actual question, yeah, I want to I want to jump in here real quick because I think that's a very interesting point. Before we go into the other one, uh, I think like there is like failure, as you said, that you can translate into winning, at least in hindsight. And my my observation has been that there are two main things: one, just being transparent about it, which you are, right? You you almost almost it's your new pride. Like I tried it. It failed. That just happened, right? You you just say very actively that you like did this and that it was a colossal failure. I think you actually you you overstate the failure a little bit, right? You say like it was so bad and so like abysmal. And maybe it was. I don't know, but it feels as if you are you you're just like honest about it and straightforward. And I think that usually works better than trying to hide it. And then like two other observations is one. I think it's very helpful for you specifically because it makes it easier for other people to remember you when they meet you for the first time. Because I still remember when we talked for the first time and I know I, I, I remember you are like a very smart, eloquent person, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that were just was engraved into my mind was that dude tried to write a novel. <laughs> I don't know why, but I always associated with you. And like there are like hundreds and hundreds of founders out there and just having this specific stamp that other people like remember is very helpful so for example um for me like for a, a long time when i when i started out in the us um it was it's that german dude who um and then german dude was always the first thing just because like i'm a german in the us right and then it was like one or two other things like it's the german dude who came to our meeting in like workout gear because he just came from the gym so that's that's one of the things and it doesn't actually like have anything to do with my skills as a founder but it just like makes them like remember what i did and who i am i think that's that's a that's a better framing and um what did i want to say as the last thing oh yeah i think the the third most important thing or like the third important thing is just reflection right and i think this differentiates the people who are actually growing continuously from their winnings and their failures it's just reflecting about either what went right or what went wrong but also even if you're not 100% sure what went wrong because sometimes you just don't know right at least for some part of it you can still reflect on how it made you feel and what you want to do in your future and i think that's extremely valuable to have either way and maybe like to to focus on that point a bit more what do you think specifically the like failure of your novel taught you for like future endeavors other than what you just said which i love is just the high like risk bets are the ones that can really change the world and it can just hurt your pride so that's funny that you say the thing about being remembered as the as the guy who writes a novel like i mean i can definitely see it right now i've never really thought about it that way but i can definitely see it from the outside in like if i met someone who was like Oh, I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a novel or, or something like, which is like atypical in tech, really. Um, or that's not how people perceive themselves or would just, even if it's true, that's not how they would introduce themselves. I can definitely see that being, being, being true. Um, I guess to your, to your, to your, to your second, no, sorry, to your, to your third point around like what else I, I took apart, apart from the fact that I can take huge, huge risks. I mean, now that I'm really thinking about it in real time now, like what are the other kind of core learnings that I've, that I've dra dragged out? And I think one thing, I'm not sure if I'd hold to this because it's really like a thought that's just popped into my head right now, is that whatever happens, working on things that matter to you are really rewarding, right? Like it's really rewarding, right? Like just working on something that you really care about, it just has a disproportionate impact, right? On Like if I just think about it, like if in five years, 
right? Um, I'm looking back on on Vit, and hopefully it's like a a huge success, right? Um, if it is, the reason it will deeply impact me isn't because it's a huge success. It will be it's because it's a huge success that mattered, right? Um, and I think that would be actually the second thing. It's the reason the novel thing I it like kind of hangs around me like a you know like a like an oversized chain or something, right? That you can kind of spot in a mile off. Um, is it's because it mattered. If it didn't matter, I don't think I would care about it as much, right? Um, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have impact. So I think that's the that's the thing, right? Like working on things just like deeply, really matter to you, um, because then yeah, then it can shape you, right? I love it. Yeah. Um, let's maybe like skip the like daily VC parts for now and focus on what really matters to you, like as of now, which you just said is your company vid. Maybe tell us a bit more, like, again, what you're doing, like, where you started out, like, has it shifted a bit? Like, what did you start out doing and what are you doing now? Is it still the same? And then we can continue from there. Cool. So what we do, just as a, as a quick takeaway sentence, as a refresher for everyone, is we offer fast, non-dilutive, founder-friendly cash for growing B2B SaaS businesses, both venture-backed and, and bootstrapped. Essentially, we let you get upfront liquidity on monthly quarterly or biannual by a new billing right um so that's the kind of takeaway headline um that i that i almost start every sales call with um <laughs> into into your into your kind of question about like how has it evolved how has it changed honestly i think the biggest change over time is where i see us going right i honestly think that's like the absolute biggest change right um and what i what i mean by that is i just got obsessed about this idea of just building a suite of financial services that founders don't have, right? And like, what, do I, what do I mean by that, right? For essentially, like if you're Zoom and you want to do a debt issuance, if you want to do an equity issuance now, right? If you want to deal with your corporate treasury or anything else, you go to Goldman Sachs, right? Or, or, or JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley. One of these funds will kind of, or they all like, like kind of compete for your business. But if you're like the 3 million ARR SaaS founder, there's kind of nothing for you, right? Like, you know, how are you going to do corporate treasury? Who knows, right? How are you going to raise, you know, debt capital, factoring, receivables, financing? Who who really knows, right? There's kind of one pathway around kind of venture, but that's kind of it, right? Um, and I think the thing that kind of I got obsessed around, like probably the biggest kind of evolution is like where we really want to take the business, which is essentially like, can we build Goldman Sachs for every SaaS business on the planet, right? Or as we internally dub it kind of tongue in cheek is, can we build Goldman Sachs, right? Um, and I think that's like the biggest change. And I think it's been a remarkably healthy one for the oil. Because initially we had this like problem that we were solving. Um, and now we have a North Star, right? And like fundamentally, the world will always evolve, right? Um, but that North Star will almost certainly always hold true in terms of, you know, it gives us essentially a compass to follow. So I think that's the biggest the biggest difference. Um, I think the core initial product offering hasn't changed that much. But, you know, how we think about our roadmap over not just, you know, the five-year time horizon, but even the next nine-month time horizon, right, given that there's essentially nine months left in the eight months. Um, I think that's really been the biggest, biggest challenge. And honestly, it's been, it's been very calming to some degree. Like, for all the chaos, it's like we really know where we're headed. Um, whereas before, it was more like, okay, we're building a solution for this problem, but, like, where do we, you know, it's kind of in the back of our mind. Like, eventually, you know, that problem is, like, narrow enough that you can kind of, solve it quote unquote and then you're just kind of scaling it or or optimizing you know gdm or whatever else it may be whereas like now it's like okay there's like a velocity and a and a momentum towards that kind of big overarching vision yeah like a good analogy that comes to mind is like your, your startup is this like ship in the open sea it like the, the sea is still like extremely stormy and the waves are high but at least you know which direction you roughly want to go in right which and there's so much uncertainty in the life as a startup founder, right? And um, it, like so many things that could go wrong, it's very helpful if you at least know, okay, I have to go east. And sometimes you have to like navigate around a cliff or there's like an island or sharks are coming. I don't even know. And you, you have to like steer away from it a little bit, but then you just like, you, you sometimes, you know where to go. And that's, that's, I think what you described, which is super helpful to have, have at least some degree of like, certainty or direction that can give you the right framework to actually make decisions because sometimes it's extremely difficult at least in my 
experienced to make the right decisions on a short-term basis if you don't really know where to go long-term. Sometimes it's also the right thing to do, right? Because you need like data and figure out what the customer actually wants. But having this overarching idea of where to go makes sense. So maybe let me follow up with this. You you do have this liquidity like option for SaaS startups now. And there's like lots of companies that are dabbling with like liquidity options for startups that are non-dilutive, right? There's some like big famous ones, like Pipe is the first that comes to mind and there are like many others. So how are you seeing the market differently than them? Or do you just think that it rather will be like an oligopoly because there's also Goldman and JP Morgan, et cetera? Or like, how do you think about the competitive dynamics? It's the short version of the question, I think. Um, so look, I mean, honestly, I'm really happy that there's more and more players in the, in the space, right? Um, because ultimately it's like a, it's a pressing customer need. Um, to kind of hop to your question more, more, more directly, like how do we view ourselves against a pipe and kind of a few of those other players out there? I mean, the reality of the, of, of the issue is kind of twofold, right? So one is short run and one is long run. In the short run, I know this might be a surprise to many people who, who listen. We don't really see that many competitors when we speak to customers, right? Um, and you've got to remember that the universe of customers is both the bootstrap SaaS founder all the way up to, to the venture-backed, you know, tech crunch addicted, crunch base addicted, you know, following at Raboy on Twitter addicted kind of tech founder, right? Um, I think many, many of us are more in that latter camp than that former camp. Uh, and you know, then we see all this stuff all the time. It becomes a bit of a narrative, right? Um, all the all the kind of you know VC, you know, um, you know, kind of thinkers from you know like Alex Danko, etc., writing about it, and you just it becomes like, oh, this is this is the state of the world. Um, but the reality is, most customers, and I really do mean most customers, we're we're the first person to have spoken to them. They really haven't heard or seen or seen a competitor. So in the short run, honestly, it's it's not too stressful. Right. Mm. In the long run, where I think this business kind of goes and what's important is what are you going to build on top of lending? Right. Like fundamentally. Right. Like when I think about it from uh, almost like a lending founder perspective. Right. Is lending. If you're doing a tech startup that's just lending, you're really doing financial engineering. And you just need to be honest about your. You need to be honest. That's what's happening. Right. And you might have found some arbitrage. You might have an arbitrage around underwriting. You might have an arbitrage about GTM, right? You might have found some arbitrage, but like fundamentally, there's too much money in the world. There's too many like ambitious, smart people, right? None of those arbitrages hold on a long enough time horizon. Um, that's why you see it on Funding Circle, you see it in Lending Club, like historically, like these lending businesses, right? They just get valued on, on both. Um, and that sounds like a very dour picture to paint of the world, considering both of us are in the lending space. Um, but then, you know, you look at the real winners, right? You look at a Klarna, you look at like an affirm, and there there are things to be done there, right? And so, what is really interesting about Klarna, at least, kind of my take on that business, is initially it's it was an underwriting arbitrage, right? Essentially, public scandy data sets on consumers that that let them underwrite customers in a way that banks weren't doing, and then they were able to build on top, you know, a checkout product and now a consumer app, and essentially like eight different products, right, over the past decade and, and a half. Um, and that's really where what I said earlier about that kind of long run kind of compass really helps. Um, because I think if you want to build a defining business in lending, you have to know after this wedge of the core product, right? Whether it's kind of, in our case, you know, essentially receivables financing, there's many others kind of out there, kind of e-commerce financing, et cetera. On the, you know, you're seeing, you know, a, a, a lot on the consumer side as well, right? Like, where are you taking it? Like, where are you going with this wedge? Because if you just plan to sit on the wedge, like, eventually it'll be, it'll be competed away. Um, and so to, I guess to, to summarize, because this has been a little bit of a verbose answer, in the short run, we're not really seeing the competitors, right? Which, which gives me a lot of confidence that, you know, we, you know, the timing is now. Um, but I also know in the medium to long run, we will see them, right? We will see them, like, for sure. And if that's going to be true, then what are we doing? What are we using this initial project, product, sorry, to go build out? Um, because I think that's ultimately where the defining companies and lending end up being built. Interesting. So how much time is currently focused product-wise on improving just the financial engineering and like the 
the core fundamentals of the product that you have right now? And have you already started building services on top or is it something for the future? So right now, the primary focus is, is like making the existing customer experience better and better and better. Um, you know, we went live in January, so we've been around for like roughly 90 days or so, right? We're still seeing a lot of edge cases, a lot of things to kind of automate. Actually, the call I had before this was literally like the new version of the underwriting model with the, with the team. Um, so like definitely that's the, um, that's the kind of focus in, in the short term, but we're already thinking about like, what is that second kind of product gonna, gonna be right. You know, that's also, I think this is also the biggest kind of like, you know, kind of worry that I try and keep on top of is that it's always easy once you started doing kind of lending to just keep expanding that lending. Right. Cause it, like fundamentally it's like, you know, if you have the access to capital, you know, it's not that difficult. And then trying to launch a second product is, you know, it's scary, right? Cause it might not find PMF. There might not be an appetite for it. Right. You, could, you know, we both know you can do all the customer research in the world. And once it's out in the, in the wild it might not work. Right. Or customers might start churning after two months. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that we, that we think about a lot. So it's definitely on top of our mind. Um, and it's definitely, you know, it's definitely more sooner rather than later. This is not one of those things where it's, you know, 2023 on, on, on some pitch deck somewhere. And then, you know, when you raise in 2023, it's 2024. And then when you raise in 2024, it's 2027, you know, the classic. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely like very much top of mind. It's taking up. A, I would say a meaningful minority of my mental space. And what I mean by that is the majority is like my customers, my team right now, right? But it is a, a meaningful minority that my brain is like, you know, um, churning through and then iterating a lot and, and thinking about how we take it. Yeah. What is your main role at the company right now? Is it sales? Is it hiring? And how do you split it with your co-founder? Cool. So my kind of co-founder's background is like deeply, deeply technical um just just for context for for the for people who might not know um and so how we split it is essentially the classic kind of kind of commercial technical split to be to be honest um in terms of you know specifically what that means for me um sales is a big component of what i'm what i'm doing i'm constantly not constantly but i would say maybe every six seven weeks kind of re-tinkering with the with the org Right. And like, you know, essentially, how do we move faster? Right. So we are right now eight people. Um, it's not the biggest number in the world. Right. But it's far away from, you know, the two people when it was just me and my co-founder sat next to each other. And, uh, you know, we've essentially had lossless comms. Right. Um, as kind of all co-founders have in the very, very early days. Um, so I think there's a there's a reasonable part of kind of tinkering with, OK, how, what processes do we need? How do we keep moving faster as, a, as an org? Right. Um, because if you just take a lot of the best in class stuff that you can read online, you know, you get in, you know, you, you get into the upper quartile for sure if you implement it, right? But you know, there's always those edges around, you know, going from the upper quartile to that upper decile to that to that top one percent performance. Um, so I think that takes up a reasonable amount of my of my time. And that kind of third piece is really around, you know, how do we just make the product experience better and better and better, right? Um, how are we kind of seamless? Um, how are we, you know, able to get customers, you know, you know, offers as, as quickly as possible, right? What are the second things we can be offering customers? So like, I think that's a meaningful part of my day. So to, to split it up, I'd say a lot of it is, a lot of it is sales, um, kind of, you know, tinkering with the org kind of comes in, I would say batches of, uh, of work. Um, and then, you know, think about kind of product strategy is kind of key. And then kind of two other big pieces of work that aren't constant, but they're important. Um, one is kind of investor relations. I'm sure you kind of appreciate, Mike. Like managing debt investors is just slightly different to managing equity investors. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like equity investors, you give them that one email once a month, and you know, um, they're, they're happy essentially. Um, debt investors a little bit, a little bit different. Um, and that kind of, the, kind of the, the second bucket that I think about is like so hiring. I would say it's almost like a toggle. So we raised around and kind of. Um, like uh, a few a few months ago um, we've kind of got closely like a lot of the senior hires that we wanted um, and so now hiring has wound down a little but you can imagine you know after another raise when there's still the staffing requirements to fill like expand again then it gets ramped up again 
Um, so yeah, that hiring is like, yeah, I think almost on that, in that context, on almost context. What was the most difficult role to hire for so far? Was it a specific role or was it um, just generally rough to find the people that passed the bar? Honestly, it's the, it's the latter, right? Um, so for example, when it comes to like, um, on the technical side, our senior software engineer guy called Enrique um, had worked with Greg before, my, my co-founder Greg. Um, he had been a Kana for roughly three years, I think, two and a half, three years. Um, and it was just like, we just knew we wanted him, right? Like, you know, I spoke to him. He was amazing. I was like, you know, oh, this, uh, I don't know what people talk about hiring, like technical talent is difficult. This is, this is, this is working out for us, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yeah. 150 interviews later, that's when we were able to, uh, to get, you know, the, the next person to join um, on the technical team. Yeah, the early hires where you just hire your friends are the best ones because you already know they are great and the like cultural fit is there. So yeah, it, it paints a very wrong picture of how, how hiring works down the road. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I was initially, ah, this is, this is going well for us. Um, and then, uh, but on the, on the commercial side, it's um, honestly getting like a head of capital markets um, was really, really difficult. Um, cause you either get, we either found that we would get people a little bit too corporate, right. And it wouldn't work. Or we would get people like who would just start up cowboys, essentially. Like we all know the type. And I was like, well, you know, no, no thanks, but no thanks. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Um, and we kind of brought in a guy called, called Christian, um, who had actually been at Goldman for, for 16 years. Um, and he's just, he's amazing right like he's amazing he's even better than i could have like dreamed he's like a a, a rock in in the team right um and that was just almost like fortuitous actually that we were able to to, to get him he actually applied for a different job in the org funnily enough um but yeah i think that was like a really hard hard hire to to fill because you know you want skill set you want alignment with the team right um sorry alignment with cultural alignment within within the team which that sort of role is like you might get like cultural alignment but you struggle to get competency or if you get competency there's no cultural alignment and we were very fortunate we were able to find someone who's better yeah and you need to afford them right uh, to be able to afford them like when we did our capital markets hire we we found some like great people that had very different salary expectations than the ones we could offer just like in terms of base salary and whatever like one of the one of the funniest moments I ever had in an interview was with someone who was an MD at one of the large banks, and he really wanted to work for us. He like was so adamant about doing it, and he was like, "Well, um, I don't even care. I'll like, I'll like take fifty percent of the money I'm making, like forty percent. I don't know." But the thing is, he was like making like two million bucks a year, so. <laughs> Obviously, we we can't just pay him a million dollars a year, right? But he was like he was amazing, and from his perspective, like it was an insane pay cut, right? He would like pay like he would have started for like seven hundred k, which is like insane, and we couldn't pay that. But at the same time, like he literally like more than like half his like salary, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just because he really wanted to work for us, which was like great thing, but like it just didn't fit. And that's also. Um, one of the interesting things, if you hire specifically on the capital markets finance side, that sometimes things work a bit differently, right? They they get their bonuses annually. They don't have equity packages the same way that startups do. So, like, you can incentivize people through equity in a startup, but it just takes a bit longer for it to actually materialize, right? And the, the, the risk is just a bit different. Um, yeah, I think there's some very interesting guys. For, for context, for example, like this one was a... Uh, a tough one, I would say, like the capital market side. Then general counsel, like the legal side, took us quite a bit. And because like you need a lawyer who is like really good at being a lawyer, but you also need someone who is fitting into like the quick dynamic environment of a startup, which is also rough. And then on the more like traditional startup side of hiring, our experience was that hiring a designer is like really rough. I don't know if you have one already, but if you ever no but we're uh we're interviewing and uh i agree tldr i agree yeah yeah hiring a designer has been like it, it has gotten to a place where we just like refunctioned one of our like internal people to do more of like design work just because hiring finding a good designer is like really really difficult and i heard that actually a lot 
from my friends in specifically in the German ecosystem or the European ecosystem. Uh, also a little bit in the US, but in the US there seem to be more designers who are like willing to like work in startups and doing that kind of stuff. But yeah. Um, okay, so we talked about hiring. We talked a little bit about what you're doing. We talked about where you want to go. Um, maybe we can close it off with like, what do you think is like your your biggest learning you've had so far and something you really would have loved to do differently when you started out to save you a lot of time? So I'm just silent because I'm quickly just thinking about the hundreds of mistakes I made. Go ahead. Uh, focus. It's, I thought I was focused at the time. I did not think I was like spreading myself thin, but looking back on it, it's just focus. It's just a high, like moving eight projects forward at 80%, then 90%, and then 100%, and then having eight complete is not as useful as doing what, like three, like one, two, three, however many projects, depending on the size, obviously, at the same time. And okay, 100% done. Okay, move on to the next one, 100% done. Because it's like eight creates kind of momentum, right? But like people think about momentum within the team, which is obviously correct, which is great personal momentum, right? And like if you end the week, and you haven't had like, this is done. I got this off my plate this week. It's really like just, you know, two, three, four weeks. It's, you know, like every week, it just becomes a little bit, a little bit tougher. Um, and I would just say like real, real focus. Um, and almost treating yourself as someone who gives deliverables, you know? I mean, like we all have to give deliverables, you know, but like in viewing that as yourself, it's like, okay, this week I need to really like deliver on these things. Because, like, lo and behold, like, when that happens, right, if you, I mean, and it should if you're focused, right, you just feel better. It's just, it's, you're just happier, right? Like, you're just really happier. Um, and then, lo and behold, the happier you are, the harder you can work and the longer you can work, right? Because, like, it's like, oh, cool. It's like, you know, winning begets winning. Um, so, I really think it's, it's like, critical, critical focus. One of the worst things in terms of, like, a, just a happiness or, like, momentum perspective is just having these projects like they drag on for weeks and weeks and you can't cross off any of the list it's just so annoying and sometimes it also helps to like cut the deliverables a little bit and just like put it into separate deliverables because sometimes you are the bottleneck because you need to get something done but what i discovered is that fairly often i would get to like 70 percent of a project and very happy with the pace, but then I waited for some external party to get back to me or Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Or you need it's exact like it's exactly my like my experience. So like um one one of the best examples ever for that was when we set up our first debt facility. Like we worked our asses off and our investors were also like the debt investors were also reasonably quick. Obviously not not our pace, but very, very quick. And I actually like working with them because for debt investors they are fairly um, reasonable and fast but the audit like took like forever the bank took forever and every time we thought we were finished they were like well like we told you that we were finished but we forgot about this part of the process and then they just added another step so and, and you can't really do anything against it so i think like splitting it up into the work that you have to do yourself and then the work you expect from other people and trying to manage both things so I've, I've gotten way better at getting especially like very archaic corporate kind of organizations to tell me in advance exactly what we need to get done for it to be finished and like by finished i don't mean like well we only need to do this but like by finished i mean it actually works and is implemented because specifically working with banks i don't know if you had that experience yourself but it has been like a nightmare if you don't tell them like crystal clear what finished actually means so funny you say that ba I, I i agree no i agree banks are not there. i mean it's it's also kind of like rewarding right because it's like oh man there's no like you know we should be able to like over the next like decade like tear them apart right like so that that like it's also fun um but um but i agree i mean the thing is it's like I thought I was being explicit when I started working with a, a current bank provider. It's like, hey, we need, like, what do we need? Well, what are the forms we have to fill out? Just give me a list. And still we were getting random stuff that I've never seen before in my life or heard of. And I'm just like, what is, like, what is this? Like, what, like honestly, what, what is happening here? Like, there's this one, like, bank provider. They were like, we'll be done in July. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's April 2022. Yeah, and they they think they think that they are fast when they say that. Well, like we can get it done in four months. I'm like, no, we need it in like four weeks tops, maybe, please. And some of the processes are just slower, but sometimes it's just them expecting us to like take two weeks to give them the right data. But if they just tell us what they need, we get it done within like half a day, right? Uh, but yeah, enough ranting about banks. I know that we are almost out of time. So like my last question that I, I always like to ask or that we like to ask in this podcast is, do you have any content slash reading recommendations for the people who listen? It can be fiction. It can be nonfiction. Just whatever you love the most and what you think you would like to recommend. Mm, I'll, I'll pick one piece of fiction and one piece of nonfiction. Um, so with fiction... I will recommend a collection of poems called Indigo by Ellen Bass. Um, the reason I recommend poetry is simply because if I recommend a book, I know no one will read it. Um, but with a poem, it should take you like three minutes. Um, and this is an excellent collection of poems. It's really, she's, she's a phenomenal poet. Um, so that's on the, on the fiction side. On the nonfiction side, I would recommend a book called How Music works let me just double check i'm just gonna quickly google yeah how music works and make sure it wasn't like, like there was a subtitle how music works um by david Bryan, um which is a phenomenal book essentially what it says on the tin about how music works um and it's really interesting but um i don't know there'll be many people thinking about you know like you know who 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 are operators here or like have founded companies who are listening and wondering why would i want to read a book about music i can highly recommend it just for the context right like um it just gives it really gave me a different perspective on how to view the world um you know when you realize even very simple things like um the architecture of a, of a musical impacts the music that will be composed which impacts you know the geniuses who will compose it right um so it gives like a really beautiful kind of context on um on, well, I mean, on, on multiple things using the power, uh, the prism sorry of, of music so those are my two things like how music works by david bryan and um as a non-fiction recommendation and uh indigo by alan bass is my fiction nice I, I haven't heard of how music works before but it sounds exactly like a book i would devour because like these kinds of like just deep dives into other very interesting areas i i love them and you always get something from them either just inspiration sometimes you can apply it to other areas as well but yeah Thanks for being on. It, it was a pleasure. And we, we learned a couple of very interesting things. Fingers are crossed for vid. We'll link vid in the show notes as well. And hope you are building the new Goldman. And we'll, we'll have you on in a couple of years to see where you're at and what, what the progress is like. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Um, yeah, have a, uh, a lovely day. Great. Thank you.